You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a five-part series of messages Warren Faber presented on interpreting the gospel from Gull Lake Bible Conference 1975. Dr. Warren Faber was dean, executive vice president, and professor emeritus at Cornerstone University and a graduate of the Moody Bible Institute. Now, here is Warren Faber on Today in the Word radio. Some years ago, I pastored a church in Illinois. And a few years before I came, a pastor had come and a new pastor, and his first act was to take the pulpit Bible and to throw it off the pulpit onto the platform and to say, we are through with that. It's a bunch of fairy tales and we will have nothing to do with the Bible while I am your pastor. Needless to say, the church was shocked and should have been because I want you to know that you have a Bible that you can understand and trust. Now, whether it's a map or a cookbook or a pamphlet on how to grow African violets, we insist upon picking up literature that we can understand and that we can trust. The only book in all of the world that makes a man wise unto salvation is the Bible. And when this book deals with the eternal destiny of men, you better believe that we want a book that we can understand and a book that we can trust. I don't know if you have noticed it, but almost every book that is written has in it a preface. Because nobody ever reads them, it has underneath the preface, to be read. And the author says to you, look, I want to tell you something about this book. And if you know something about this book, it'll be much easier for you to read it and to understand it. And we continue to go on reading books without reading the preface. But it's important to know a little bit about the book before you get started in reading it, trying to understand it. I'm going to say some things to you about the Bible that are very important to you in understanding what kind of book it is that you have in your hand. There are four observations, main observations, that I'm going to make. The first is that this book is God's special revelation to men. When we talk about revelation, we mean something that people can't discover on their own. We mean something that you will never find by doing experimentation. We mean something that God has to show to us or we'll not know it. My daughter was sitting in a science course in a state university, and they were showing how the earth began. And she poked the person sitting next to her and said, I suppose this is a documentary. Well, of course not. People really don't know. God knows because he made it. He reveals that to us in his word. The Bible starts out, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's something you ought to know. 
is something I ought to know, something everyone ought to know. Now, the Bible is God's special revelation. But when we say that, I think we have to be a little careful. We have to realize that this is not all of God's revelation. There's an interesting verse in John chapter 21 and verse 25, and it says to us, there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. So God has said and done a lot of things that are not recorded in the Bible. Someone said if you took all of the things that Jesus did and wrote them down, it would only take 40 days. And if you took all the things that he said, it would only take about a day of talking to complete all of the words that he said. So you and I do not have all of the things that God has revealed in the Bible. But remember, in this special revelation which we have, Jesus is a divine agent. He's the one who's responsible for this revelation. Do you remember how John starts his book? He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. It tells about how Jesus is center stage. He's called the very Word of God. He's the agent of revelation. Now, God reveals himself in this world in two ways. The old theologians used to say, God wrote two books. They would point to the book of nature because the heavens declare the glories of God and the earth shows forth his handiwork. And then they would point to the Bible, God's special revelation. So we can learn things. God has revealed himself in nature and in creation. Men have tried to rub out the pattern and stamp of God, but it's like inlaid linoleum and a pattern goes all the way through and you can never get rid of the fact that God has put the imprint of his handiwork on this world in which we live. But it's the special revelation that we're concerned about. And special revelation deals with God's redemption of mankind through Christ. The Bible tells us how God made man and made him good and put him in a garden and how he sinned and how God started right at the very beginning to bring man back to himself, to provide salvation, to care for his sin. And so it tells us of God's redemption. And the climax of it all is when Jesus comes into the world, when he is born, when he dies on the cross, when he rises from the dead. That's that's the center of all that he says about redemption. Well, the first thing that we've said then about this special revelation is that the Bible's not all of God's revelation, but it's a very important part. The second thing that I want to say is that the Bible does not merely contain God's revelation. It is God's revelation in word and act. There's some people who are going about and saying, this Bible contains the Word of God. Some of the things in it are not the Word of God, and we'll sort of 
shift and sort and sift and whenever we like, we'll say, that's word of God. <laughs> no, that's sort of dangerous. The Bible is the word of God in word and act. There are 66 books in this Bible, 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. And in this Bible, God preserves all of the special revelation that he wants us to have. Everything that God wants you to know about him, everything that God wants you to know about you, everything that God wants you to know about how you and him can get together is in this book. And when you pick up this book, you'll notice some interesting things. You'll note that there are some characteristics about it that are unique, uniquely different from any other religious book in all of the world. One of the things that you'll notice is that the Bible is very personal. God is speaking to man. And when you pick up the Bible, you want to pick it up because you want God to speak to you. It's a very personal thing, God addressing us in and through his word. There's a second thing that's interesting about it, and it, uh, it's propositional. It says some things, makes statements. It says, thou shalt not kill. We understand that. That's a proposition. Don't kill. Thou shalt not steal. It says, God is love. That's a proposition. There's a propositional truth in this Bible. There's something else about it. It's historical. It tells us of things that God did and God said in history. There's some people who don't know that or don't want to accept it. I heard a man say one time, it doesn't make any difference to me whether there was a person by the name of Jesus and whether he lived in history and whether he died on a cross or not. The important thing to me is that God is big enough in redeeming love to take my sin upon himself and forgive me. Nonsense. God is big enough to take your sins upon himself and forgive you, but he demonstrated it in history by sending his son, and Jesus lived and died in history. And this Bible records the history of God's redeeming acts and records the words that were spoken in history. It's an important thing. This book is a book that was written, and it's written once and for all. And in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verses 18 and 19, we're told about what's going to happen to people who subtract or add to this book. This book also is God's word inscripturated. There's an interesting little note in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 where the apostle Paul is writing to Timothy and he reminds Timothy of how from a child he had known the holy scriptures. And a beautiful picture emerges of a mother who put her boy on, his, on her knee and then with her finger read the Bible. And the word holy scriptures is holy grammata. It's really the holy letters. And uh, Timothy learned how to read out of the Bible. His mother was spelling out the words and 
just tracing them out and reading the Bible. But the Bible is called the Holy Writings. It has been inscripturated. It has been written down. And you and I have a special revelation that has been written down. Now, we've been talking about this. I want you to respond. Do you believe that the Bible is God's special revelation? Do you believe that the Bible is God's special revelation to you? Well, there's a place in your workbook for that response and for you to indicate it. And after you've indicated it, I want you to do something else for me. Pick numbers from one to five and uh, stop and think about it. And you say, what is the most important characteristic of this Bible? That it's personal? That God spoke to me? If it's the most important, give it a five. That it's propositional? That it's historical? That it's once for all? That it's written down? Which is the most important? And would you rate them one through five? I'll read them. If you don't have a workbook, you can uh, write them down and rate them. The Bible is a personal book. How important is that to you? One through five. The Bible is a propositional book. How important is that? One through five. It happened in history. It's historical. How important is that to you? Read it, one through five. It's once and for all. He's given you all that you need. You don't need any more. How important is that to you? And it's inscripturated. It's written down in a book that you and I can hold in our hands. How important is that to you? One through five. I'll bet you that some of you rated those differently. When you come right down to it, they're all pretty important, aren't they? If it hadn't been written down, you wouldn't have a Bible. And every one of these is important. And maybe they all ought to be ranked five because that's the kind of book that you have. Remember, the Bible is God's special revelation to you. Now, there's a second thing that we want to notice. And that is that this Bible is verbally inspired. When we talk about inspiration, we're talking about the quality of the writing. When we talk about revelation, we're talking about the content of the Bible. Now, you can trust the Bible not only because God has spoken, but also because the entire process is inspired or God breathed and God controlled down to the very words of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness. I want to define inspiration for you, and I take my definition from a book written by the late Dr. Burkhoff, Principles of Interpretation. By inspiration, we understand that supernatural influence exerted on the sacred writers by the Holy Spirit 
by virtue of which their writings are given divine truthfulness and constitute an infallible and sufficient rule of faith and practice. Well, that may sound sort of heavy for you and a little difficult to follow, and so we'll break it up by just talking a little bit about how it happened. What is the process? How did God give to us a book that is verbally inspired? Now, I've had some graduate training in speech, and I know that communication is a problem. And there are a lot of misunderstandings that come when people are talking to each other and around each other and at each other. But uh, God knew all about that because he created men. And he made us with the potential of communication. And uh, so he knows the problems in communication. They, they didn't take him by surprise one bit. The first thing, of course, is that if God is going to commu communicate to man, unless he speaks directly, he's going to have to have a person do it. And 2 Peter 1.20 tells us about this, and you'll want, to, you'll want to note this reference to write it down, because God tells us he, how he handled the person problem in the process of giving us the Bible. 2 Peter 1 and verse 20. And uh, here we told, we're told that no prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation, for prophecy came not in old time but by the will of man, but holy men of God, that's verse 21, spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. God used holy men, men that he had touched and sanctified and set apart for himself. So he chose the men who were going to be involved in the process. The second thing that he was concerned about was the product. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, is God-breathed. All of it that you have, God-breathed. He controls it. And then, of course, he's concerned about the units by which we communicate with words. Some people have had a little problem with verbal inspiration. They've said, well, I think the thoughts are inspired, but not the words. Well, it's difficult to have thought inspiration without words. And not only is it difficult, it's not very biblical. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13 that words are also inspired. And we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Verse 13, these words, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual, or communicating spiritual ideas in spirit-taught or spirit-directed words. 
God has given us a Bible that is verbally inspired. Now, we need to respond to this. It is important. And when we stop to think about it, we realize that the Bible claims it, verbal inspiration. Jesus confirms it. And the only response which we can make is to say, if the Bible claims it and Jesus confirms it, I'll believe it. That's the response we're looking for. It was Bishop H.C.G. Mole who wrote, he, Jesus, absolutely trusted the Bible. And though there are in it things inexplicable and intricate that have puzzled me so much, I am going not in a blind sense, but reverently to trust the book because of him. And I hope that as you respond, and I ask you to respond, do you believe that the Bible is verbally inspired? You can write down, yes, with confidence, because Christ himself believed it and confirmed it. There's a third thing about the Bible that you ought to know if you're going to really understand it and interpret it right, and that is that the Bible describes a basic diversity. I remember having the opportunity of leading a man to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And after he'd received Christ as his Savior, I said to him, now you ought to start reading the Bible because he didn't know anything about it. And I said to him, I'd start reading with Mark, and I chose Mark because it's a short gospel. Then I said I'd read Acts because that tells of how the church was born, and then read Romans because that'll give you some understanding of what the truth of God's redeeming grace is all about and how he's provided salvation and righteousness for a people who needed it and can receive it through simple faith in Jesus Christ. And so he listened to me. And then he went out and he said, that is ridiculous. I have never read a book that way in my life. So he compromised. He started reading at Mark, like I told him, and started also to read in Genesis, which was the beginning. Well, he got to Exodus, and things were going pretty well. And then he got to Leviticus, and he read about priests and sacrifices and offerings and incense, and he looked around and he said, I don't see any of that in any of the churches. What in the world is this all about? And the next time I met him, he was confused. He had problems. You have to realize that when you pick up the Bible, that it describes a basic diversity. Before long, if you start at Genesis, you're in a strange world with different customs, different language, different way of worship. And uh, it helps when you understand there are some basic differences in this Bible. Now, there are some superficial differences. The differences in language, Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New. The difference in time, way back from the beginning of time until the, uh, oh, the uh, century before Christ. And then uh, starting with, uh, with the first century in the New Testament. 
And then there is a difference in author because there are some 40 authors and there's a difference in purpose. But those are superficial differences. They really aren't that important. The basic differences are found in the ways in which God deals with man. And when we take a look at the Bible, we find that it is called Old Testament and New Testament because it describes two basic covenants, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, or the Old Agreement and the New Agreement. And when we talk about these, we're talking about the Mosaic Covenant and about the New Covenant that God has made with us in Christ Jesus. So we must pay special attention to the difference between Israel and the church. That's very important for us to understand and the ways in which God worked with them and works with us. I guess I have to ask the question, do you really understand that basic difference? Now in the Old Testament times, God chose a people. He called them his own. They went by the name of Israel. They lived under the uh, Ten Commandments and uh, they had ceremonial law that prescribed all of their worship. Although there are many things in that Old Testament that are very important for you, that Old Covenant was made with Israel. The New Testament is made with you, with all who receive Jesus Christ as Savior. And I hope you can say, yes, I understand that. But having said that, you have to understand too that we're not going to take and throw half of the Bible away because the Bible contains a wonderful unity in Christ, and that's the fourth thing that I want to observe. The Bible reveals a unity in Christ. Now, men have tried in many ways to find out what the thread was that connected the Bible. Some men have found it in doctrine. They've said that as you pick up this Bible and as you look, you'll find that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New. And that's true. Some men have denied it. But the, the revelation of God is a revelation of the one true and living God. And as you pick up this Bible and read it, you'll find out that man is essentially the same throughout all of history. Some people like to think that there's a great improvement. But I want you to know that man could argue with his wife traveling eight miles an hour in an ox cart just as vigorously and heatedly as he can traveling 800 miles an hour in a jet plane. Man is essentially the same. And when you read this Bible, you'll find out that the doctrines tell us of men and their relationship to God that, you know, are essentially the same. So you can find unity in doctrine. You also can find unity in God's plan of redemption. For fallen man, there's only one way of salvation. That's always by grace through faith. In the Old Testament and in the New, God saves men by believing. 
Otherwise, Abraham couldn't be an example to us. And it says, by faith, Abraham. And that's the only way you could be saved, to believe God and to believe his promises and accept his provision of grace. But the most important point of unity in all of the Bible is found in Jesus Christ. Psalm 40 has an interesting statement in it. In the volume of the book it is written of me. And Luther said, what book? What person? And a book is the Bible and the person is Jesus Christ. Psalm 40, write it down, it's a good verse. Jesus also was talking to those who are around him and he said to them in John 5, verse 39, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And then he said in John 5 and verse 46, that Moses, way back, in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Moses wrote of me. For had ye believed Moses, John 5, 46, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Then do you remember when Jesus rose from the dead and he was walking down the Emmaus Road, he met some, uh, some people who had been believers and they didn't recognize him and in the 20 fifth verse and the 44th verse of Luke 24, he's saying to them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then he told them of how he was going to fulfill all things. Verse 44, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. This book, Old and New Testaments, finds its unity in Jesus Christ, speaks of him. And it's an important thing that you began to put Christ in the center and see him unifying it all. The proof of unity is, of course, in the testimony of Jesus and in the preaching of the apostles. At Pentecost, Peter can stand up and preach from the Psalms about Jesus. Philip can come and join the eunuch on, on the, the way, uh, the Gaza Road, and he can say to him as he's reading from Isaiah, this speaks of Jesus. And began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And Paul at Antioch could preach from the Old Testament about Jesus. For the only Bible the early church had was the Old Testament. And it spoke of Jesus. And God gave to us through his son and through his apostles the New Testament to help us understand more fully his great redemptive plan. All right, there are four things that you ought to know about this book if you're going to really understand it. One of them is that it's God's special revelation. The second is that it is verbally inspired. The third is that it 
provides and describes a basic diversity, and the fourth is that there is unity in Christ. Now, having looked at the Bible, we ought to respond. The interpretation of the Bible rests upon some basic presuppositions. You're going to interpret the Bible on the basis of what you believe about the Bible. You're going to interpret the Bible on the basis of what you believe about theology. And you're going to interpret the Bible on the basis of what you believe about language. Now, you may not have thought about this, but it's going to affect you. And uh, before we start, really with the process of interpretation, I want to spend just a little bit of time talking to you about doctrine. The Apostle Paul talked a little bit about this to Timothy. He said, study to show thyself approved. Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, cutting it straight. It was a term, you know, that the tent maker used. Paul was a tent maker. And I'll tell you one thing, when you cut those old skins out, if you didn't cut them straight, you had a little problem sewing them together again. And so he says, when you take the word of God in your hand, you better cut it straight or it'll never come together. And uh, let's talk about that for just a little bit. Then I'll give you an assignment that you can work on. First of all, the Bible is not, N-O-T, not, underlined, circled, is not a theological treatise. There isn't any place in the Bible where you can get a discussion in detail of God or Jesus or man. You have to go all through the Bible searching to put these things together because the Bible is not a theological treatise. It presents God's creative work. It starts out, the Bible starts out without ever telling you anything about God. It just says, in the beginning, God. God created the heavens and the earth. Goes and tells you about what he was doing in creation. And then it traces the plan of redemption, showing God at work from the time that sin entered into the world. He calls Adam when Adam is sin. He calls Abraham to journey into the promised land. He creates a nation. Four-fifths of the Pentateuch one-sixth of the Old Testament tells you about 40 years that were experienced under Moses. Isn't that interesting? That's a very important period of time. But uh, it traces the plan of redemption, records the songs of the saints, and we have a whole book of songs, psalms, I sometimes feel badly that we don't sing them anymore. But the songbook, we read them. Try reading them out loud. That's the next best thing to singing. 
sort of hear them. They're very beautiful. The Bible also contains the promises and warnings of the prophets who always threatened judgment upon sin and deliverance when God's people turned in humbleness of heart to their God. It then goes on in the New Testament and tells of Christ's provision of redemption through his birth and life and death and resurrection and ascension and glorious return. Shows how the gospel spreads throughout the world and then it tells us of a glorious future. But the Bible is not a theological treatise. But you know, we're logical people. We have to organize and we have to classify. We have to read the Bible and then sort of sort the mail and say, what does the Bible say about this and what does the Bible say about that? So we need a topical index and we need, uh, we, we need to put it together. Now, theologians, when they decided to sort the mail for us, talk about the loci of theology, the places of theology. And uh, they sort of divided into six categories. They called them theology, and that's a specialized study of God. And anthropology, that's a study of man. And Christology, that's the study of Christ. And soteriology, the study of salvation. And ecclesiology, the study of the doctrine of the church. And eschatology, and we're doing that in our, in our evening sessions, the doctrine of last things, future, things that are yet to come. Now, all of us ought to, at some time in our lives, sit down and consciously write down what we believe about God, what we believe about man, what we believe about Christ. We ought to do that. And then as we come to the Bible, we ought to come realizing that the Bible doesn't contradict what it teaches about God in any place or man or salvation. And we just ought to make sure that this harmonizes with itself. Now, in your workbook, you'll find a brief resume of those doctrines and some responses that you ought to make. And that's your assignment for next time, but I'm going to talk about just one of them. I'm going to talk about the biblical doctrine of man. Because I think so very many interesting things have happened with the Bible doctrine of man. You say to Christians, what is the most important thing that the Bible teaches about man? And you know what some of them will say to you? They'll say, that he's a sinner. Well, that's true that he's a sinner. But uh, for many years, I drove a Ford. If someone would have asked me about my Ford, what is your Ford like? I pr probably could have said, it's a wreck. But I'm not sure that that's what makes Fords Fords. At least some of you who are driving LTDs wouldn't want to accept that. And uh, even the Galaxy, you, you say, that isn't what makes a Ford a Ford. And it isn't being a sinner that makes man man. The most important thing that the Bible teaches about man 
is that he's made in the image of God and that he's different from all of the animal world. That's a significant thing. Because, you see, all of redemption is going to be directed toward making that man who has become a wreck, who is a sinner, tragically falling short of all the standards that God has set for him, not finding fulfillment, not performing as he was programmed and made to perform. The whole program of redemption is going to be a program whereby God comes and takes this man who is less than what he ought to be and conforms him again to the image of his dear son. So then when we talk about man, we start out by saying we believe in the dignity of man more than anybody else in the world, made in the image of God one of God's creatures that is unique. And then we go on to say, but we also believe that this man is totally depraved. Hard sometimes when you look into a little crib and you say about a little child born in the image of his father, marred by sin, let him go and do his own thing, and he'll grow up to be a sinner, making wrong choices. And when we talk about being totally depraved, we don't mean that a man is as bad as he can actually become. But we mean that every part of him is bad. That he doesn't think right. That he doesn't choose right. That he doesn't feel right. And you've got to admit that there are lots of times when you don't think right, feel right, or choose right. And that's because of what has happened to you and happened to me when we sinned against our Lord and our God. God has provided redemption. And when you begin to talk about his salvation, you see how it's directed to you and to me, to your heart and to mine, to your mind and to my mind and to our choices. It's a wonderful thing when you begin to sort the mail and begin to understand what the Bible is saying about God and about man and about salvation and about these other doctrines. Well, the more you read the Bible and the more you know about God, the more you know about what it teaches about man and about salvation, the easier it's going to be for you to interpret the Bible. And uh, so you do the assignment here. Just fill out the worksheets, and I think some of it will be self-explanatory. And if you do not have a workbook, then what you ought to take is a short book on doctrine or confession of faith and just write out a synopsis of what you believe about the major doctrines. And then, next time, we'll get to work on actually interpreting the Bible. And I'm sure that you're looking forward to that. You're saying, why didn't you get started right away? Well, it's because we needed some groundwork. But we'll get started in our next session. Shall we pray? Father, in this hour again, 
We're thankful for the opportunity that is ours to think about you and your word, and we pray that you'll make us competent students of the word, capable interpreters of it. Help us to read the Bible and discover meaning and significance for our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of five messages Warren Faber presented on interpreting the gospel from Gull Lake Bible Conference 1975. Dr. Warren Faber was dean, executive vice president, and professor emeritus at Cornerstone University and a graduate of the Moody Bible Institute. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.